could cause deafness, anal bleeding, and death. Michael Bird, welcome to The Political Animals. Jonathan, thank you for having me, and hello to all of your listeners. Michael, why don't you tell people a little bit about yourself? Okay, I'm Michael Bird. I'm the Academic Dean and Lecturer in Theology at Ridley College here in Melbourne, Australia. I'm also an Anglican priest. I specialise in the study of the New Testament, Christian thought, and uh, how to be a Christian and how to work and serve God in a complex and changing world. That sounds great, and we're definitely living in a complex and changing world. Uh, Michael, what we're going to discuss today is a very small, easy question that should take us about five to seven minutes, which is the future of evangelicalism. Uh, Just before we dive into this, and I didn't didn't quite brief you properly on this because uh, I told you that was going to be my first question, but I forgot to tell you that (laughs) that was actually a a bridging question, and that is that we are recording this at Ridley College, an institution Uh, As some listeners will know, uh, I have a familial connection to. This was founded as an evangelical Anglican theological college. Um, So the first question is, are you an evangelical? Or to use the crass lingo of today, do you identify as evangelical? If so, what kind of evangelical are you? And if you're not, what are you doing here? That's a very, yeah, it's a a whole bunch of questions. Um, When people say to me, are you evangelical? Or do you identify, or what type of evangelical? I mean, the, the, the weird thing is evangelical is a, like an adjective, and now the adjective needs other adjectives to describe the adjective. Now, the fact that that's the point we're at kind of shows you what a kind of weird, crazy world we are at. So when people tell me or ask me, are you evangelical? The first thing I have to say, well, what do you think that word means? Now, for some, evangelical is just a synonym for a fundamentalist, okay? It is uh, someone who is rigorously religious, judgmental, perhaps bigoted. Uh, Other times it can be a political tribe, you know, someone who is white, uh, capitalist, or believes in a free market, possibly libertarian. It has that type of meaning. Uh, In Germany, uh, the German word evangelisch basically means not Catholic, and it's (laughs) Everything that is Christian, but not Catholic or Orthodox or just like, you know, vaguely Protestant, uh, it, it can mean that. And it, but even beyond that, then you've, you've got things like I'm a conservative evangelical, I'm a progressive evangelical. And the biggest danger of the term, it is now so broad as to be practically meaningless. And it's just used as one adjective combined with many to a whole bunch of different Protestant tribes. And I I have uh, some good friends uh, who no longer identify as evangelical. They have not changed their theology. They have not changed their church affiliation. But because the term is now so freighted, so loaded, so politicized or treated in a pejorative way, and they don't want to be prejudged for that, they refrain from using the word evangelical. But me, on the other hand, I still like the word. And I am fighting a a bold battle to keep that word because I believe it's a good word. Because I believe uh, evangelicalism is a historical Protestant movement that is concerned with renewal of the church through the recovery of the gospel 
through cultivating the spirituality of the gospel and seeing the church's mission to be the promotion of the gospel. And that has a long and proud pedigree in the Protestant tradition, particularly in the merging together of uh, Puritanism and Pietism, uh, which came together for certain social causes like the abolition of slavery, uh, for uh, movements and organizations and interdenominational cooperation in world mission, uh, various other causes that are evangelistic and social things. So, and you know, university ministries like you know IVCF, um, the old Campus Crusade, uh, that type of thing. So, yeah, I think this is this is it's got a good history. It's a good word. It's a good idea. And I even wrote a book called Evangelical Theology. And when I came to the second edition, I thought, oh man, do I want to change it? You know. <laughs> You know, because evangelical, you know, do, do people going to think that I'm, you know, a Trump supporter? Are they going to think I'm just some sort of German who's not Catholic? You know, what should I do? I mean, I thought about changing it, but reformational Catholic theology probably was going to be too much of a mouthful. And the uh, marketing boffins at uh, Zondervan were never going to go for it. But, you know, I thought, it like, you know what? Stuff it. I'm going to, why should I have to change? I haven't changed. Um, if other people are abusing or disabusing the word evangelical, that's their problem. So I'm keeping the word evangelical because I believe in the evangel, the gospel. And to anyone else who wants to use it or misuse it, you can prize it from my cold, dead hands. <laughs> Michael, I think that probably qualifies you as an evangelical. But let me make just a couple of observations that, um, that I thought that you that very interesting intro sparked for me. Of course, you did make me realize that really perhaps I need to make a distinction, which is, am I really asking about the future of a term and a concept? That is one question. Or am I really asking about the future of this historical, traditional, theological movement or identity? And what I'm hearing from you is that you are a defender of a particular tradition so as the concept has been i don't know if hollowed out is the right term or it's been pulled apart i'm just thinking you know what what does it say that you as you rightly pointed out when the adjective which used to just qualify what kind of christian you were or i guess highlight what kind of theological tradition you belong to in this case a particular reform tradition so it was a genuine doing adjectival work now that you need another adjective to qualify that old adjective that tells you, tells me that the movement has become so splintered, so uh, discombobulated that people can, you can no longer assume what the original adjective means in terms of that theological. And I wonder, perhaps we could chat about this, if it's really primarily politics that has come in and if you're like ruined or problematized or complicated, what was a functional adjective. So. You, you alluded to progressive versus conservative um, evangelical, which is a, possibly the main division I see uh, emerging. And maybe that is reflective of a movement that was rather apolitical, at least once upon a time in former manifestations and iterations, and now has become so politicized that the various political camps have to distinguish themselves mm. from each other. But of course, there is that large problem that you alluded to, and, and you spoke about how you have felt you have found yourself pondering this too, that is wanting to distance yourself from the term altogether. 
and there is some evidence that particularly young people um, are leaving the term just for your own because we don't know each other and I've, I've mentioned this on the podcast uh, before I was raised in an evangelical uh, family and theological milieu I myself feel rather ambivalent about the term um, I don't I don't have a problem with it there are certain people that describe me as evan- evangelical and I don't see that as a, a term of opprobrium but I don't really go around describing myself as a an evangelical I don't have the <laughs> I don't have the desire that you have to sit there with it locked in my cold dead embrace and to make sure no one else touches it I'm more if you like more open to the idea that maybe we we move away from evangelicalism not necessarily theological theologically um, but I'm not I don't really mind uh, what you what you call it yeah I think with evangelicalism you've got the two problems one is the fragmentation Okay, so uh, evangelical is now a term that can involve, like, let's give the Australian spectrum. It can include everything from, like, tier fund sort of Christians who are very social justice orientated. You know, they do a lot of good work, you know, with, you know, um, uh, the global community in, in aid and that type of thing. And they're very into social justice courses. And then on the other end, you might say there's the Australian Christian lobby. Uh, which would also identify more broadly. So you, you could say that it, it, the evangelicalism is so broad, you've got sort of very social justice-based to very uh, cultural warfare-based. And yeah, like, let me say, I've got friends in both camps, mm. and they always tell me, how can you hang out with that person? You know, so what are you doing hanging out with the Australian Christian lobby? And then they'd be like, well, hey, why are you hanging out with Tear Fund? <laughs> you know, we thought you were one of us type of, type of a thing. So I, I, I try to be all things to all people. Um, <laughs> It's 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 part of my training to one day become an Anglican bishop. <laughs> on second thoughts, sounds probably, like you're doing very well and well on your on way. S- second thoughts, we might want to edit that out. Uh, <laughs> no way, uh, that's staying in. <laughs> that's right. So so on the one problem, you got the fragmentation, and that's the same in the United States, where you've got you know when people like Joel Osteen, or an R.C. Sproul, you know, or a Tim Keller, um, you know, all these people can go under the name. Uh, evangelical. But one thing I've learned about evangelicalism in the United States, it's basically anyone who is uh, vaguely Protestant with some sort of uh, conservative sense mm. uh, gets called evangelical. So it's not like, you know, how do you identify like evangelical voters? I mean, it's not like they're black or Latino mm. or like that. And, and it, it comes down to a type of self-identification, which, which is kind of, you know, weird. Uh, because, you know, and, and, and then as the New York Times pointed out, the less frequently evangelical voters go to church, the more likely they were to go vote for Trump. Mm. So, and you had statistics like 80% of evangelicals voted for Trump, uh, which is a little bit odd because only, 50, uh, only 80% of evangelicals actually vote, voted. So it's the 80% of the 80%, of the 80% yeah. which actually gives you about 50%. And even then it's based on a self-identification. So the idea that all white evangelicals are just holy bowly, you know, going for Trump is a little bit of a, a distortion based on self-identification and the way they actually do statistics. And you, okay. could, you could throw into that the fact that theologically, a lot of um, black Christians who pew for reasons I can kind of understand politically, but it really distorts the picture. They get always hired off into hived off into a separate category yes. which is yep. um, you know black churches but theologically 
I would have thought the majority of, of those qualify as evangelicals, and yet most they they have a majority Democrat vote. Which, yep. if you included them as evangelicals, which I think you could under many, you know, the kind oh, of Babington definitely. definition of definitely. evangelical, mm. then you've got a much more complicated picture. And really, the problem here, I mean, there are loads of problems, but one is a it seems to me a very precise and perennial general definitional problem you have from the point of view of a researcher, and that is. Do you take, I mean, you could say this about Islam, jihadists, Sunni, extremists, yep. Wahhabi. Do you define the category as anyone who self-identifies as the category, irrespective of what they believe? So in this case, any American that says to a pollster or someone doing the survey, I'm an evangelical. I last went to church 17 years ago. Yeah, I am. I love guns. Exactly, yeah. I love America. I think, and the Constitution. I think, yeah. yeah. QAnon is really my God, but I also think Jesus is cool because that's what it means to be an American yeah. nationalist. They get qualified as well as the evangelist who yeah. reads the Bible every day and he's trying to um, preach the gospel. Or do you take some objective definition? You know, you've got your Babington quadrilateral, there's myriad others, and then... You go the opposite approach and you ignore what people say they are and then you you apply this category notwithstanding the difficulties from a research point of view which then rules out some self-identified evangelicals and brings in a lot of people who might just say i'm a southern baptist i'm a reformed christian they might not use the term evangelical and i know plenty of people in my own life who are you know if you're looking for someone that qualifies on a lot of these objective definitions mm -hmm. these people are poster boys and women for evangelicalism but you'll never hear the word come out of their lips because it's just not part of their their tradition yeah um, I, th I think that's definitely right um i would prefer to define it by actual praxis and uh and belief i, I don't think you can do just praxis i don't think you can do just belief i think it's got to be a mixture of praxis and belief through through how you define evangelicalism, but I think the self-identifying thing is um, just a load of nonsense. You know, like it's like someone who hasn't been to church for seventeen years and kind of merges it, you know, with their own sort of political nationalism. And you know, for for many, um, you know, let's say let's pick on America since they're Americans. You know, for some, being a Christian is an expedient way to be an American conservative. Okay. Uh, whereas it should be that around. I mean, I'm, I, I may lean politically conservative because I find that's a useful way to be a Christian. Mm. Uh, but in other case, the real prime goal is just making religion one cog in the wheel of a of a political worldview or a a, a political approach to solving things. And it's it, it, it's just something along those lines. If you're defining evangelicalism that way, uh, which is politically, uh, I think that that's that's not helpful, and that's that's largely what is skewing. Uh, and, and largely because we're focusing on America as well, and we think obviously, well, what's true? Those, you know, must be uh, those American evangelicals. Obviously, are representative of all evangelicals around the world, which is totally not the case. And I, I explain to my American friends things like, well, outside of America, Christians believe in universal health care, because you know every Western democracy from Norway to New Zealand has universal health care, except for basically the richest nation on earth. And you will not find Christians in Ghana or in Scotland talking about the right to bear arms and form militias. Uh, now that's that's particular to your context, mm. you know, because of you know the the colonial environment, the kind of you know the don't tread on me, get rid of the monarchy, throw the tea off the boat, and 
and you know you've got these you know porous borders with um some of your neighbors so i understand there's a context in which this sort of mentality of guns and defend yourself takes place and that's fine but you cannot say but that is a christian um conviction when it's not shared by other christians outside your particular landscape now maybe you can come up with good arguments as to why having an ar-15 at home is a good idea uh, but you cannot say, but it's a distinctively Christian idea because Christians don't seem to be in, in agreement with you across history or even around you at the moment. So, I mean, so that, 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 for me, that's the two things. You've got the fragmentation of who it is an evangelical to the various camps and its politicization, particularly in the American context. And that is why people are... Uh, reluctant to use the term because it has become, if you like, tarnished by those those two things. The Bible Society did a survey a number of years ago trying to find out what is the best term that people respect, and they everything from Bible-believing, fundamentalist, evangelical. The term that has the best currency or the least, um, uh, how you can say, um, annoyance that it creates is the term practicing Christian. Mm. So if, if, if I'm ever doing media and they say, how would you describe yourself? I say, well, I'm a practicing Christian. Um, for, since that's, the, that's the most positive term you can use. Because I, I guess the idea, people like the idea of someone practicing Christianity. What they don't like is the hypocrisy, the eccentricities, and also the way evangelicals can appear to focus on particular social issues which are contested. And obviously you've got things like you know, same-sex marriage and, and a whole bunch of similar controversial. When Christians seem to be focused on them, uh, I, I think the wider culture who disagrees with their conviction is more likely to be hostile. That's interesting, Michael, because one construal of what you just said is that you made a fairly compelling case to not use the term evangelical. And you even highlighted an alternative, mm. at least for using in secular context which is practicing uh christian and and yet at at the beginning you outlined how you you are not willing to let this term become degenerate and uh sort of have it perverted into different Mm. whether political meanings or whatever i suspect if i'm going to guess that that's because you have an eye on the sort of theological gospel component, and you you do you are a uh, ordained minister and theological New Testament scholar. So I can see why you would go there. Am I right? Is that is oh, that, yeah. that that? And again, this this let me ask. Sorry, I cut you off, but let me ask you the big first question related to the future of evangelicalism. I mean, to what extent does all this? Let's call it political baggage that has attached itself to the term evangelical, to what extent does that imperil the theological deposit or treasure, to use a good orthodox (laughs) term, and am I right that that's really what you're fighting for? And how do you then, how do you rise to this challenge of trying to restore or preserve (laughs) this theological notion of evangelicalism from its political deterioration okay well there's three things uh, look in some public apologetics depending who i'm talking to like if i'm talking to if i'm talking to you i can say look i'm an evangelical and you know what i mean you know me mm. uh, and you can see the book picture behind you of the book called 
ironically, evangelical theology. So you've got a good idea. So when I'm around you, I will use the term. If I'm being interviewed by someone from the ABC or mm-hmm. the Guardian, yeah. uh, then I'm going to use the word practicing Christian. Because as soon as I say the word evangelical, I'm going to instantly activate in their minds a whole bunch of prejudice. It's a trigger word. It's a, it, is, it is a trigger word because they, they, they've got their stereotype, particularly of the white patriarchal Trump voter, and then they're going to impute all of that to me. Throw in a okay. bit of neo-Nazi as well. Yeah, throw a little bit of, you know, or whatever you want, whatever you want. So, you know, you've got to be shrewd. You've got to be smart. You've got to know your audience. Mm. So there are some places where I'm not going to mention it. Okay. Now, of course, if I'm being interviewed about my book, Evangelical Theology, it's going to be pretty hard to avoid at some point. Uh, did you or did you not write this book? Um, I do not wish to answer that question. I can't do that. Uh, so in, it, in the church's own internal discourse, I will use the word evangelicalism and the event because I believe in the gospel and all the things that that represents, the, the, the worldview, the constellation of beliefs and praxis, being a missional church, a missional community, the promotion of the gospel, uh, that type of a thing. But look, if I had to choose at the end of the day, I would say that the word is certainly is not the most important thing. Uh, it, is, it is what the movement as a whole represents, okay? It is about its spirituality, uh, its core beliefs, which is, I believe is also an expression of Catholic Christianity, the great tradition of the church. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in those things. Uh, the label itself would not be the most important thing. Although that said, I do think, you know, because it's got the word gospel in it, mm-hmm. I do think it is a good word. And, and the problem is people are using it in those other ways, the, uh, the politicized way. And I just think in the long haul, we're going to outlive that. Mm. I think in the long haul, uh, one day the whole the whole idea that evangelicalism is an extreme white-wing, white sort of movement is going to be a footnote in the history of wider global evangelicalism because that's not the connotation it has in the United Kingdom. That's not the connotation it has in Africa. That's not the connotation it's got in, in Brazil. I mean, 15% of Brazilians identify as evangelical. 15%, okay, identify as evangelical, or whatever the Portuguese word is, uh, is for evangelical. I guarantee they are not all Trump supporters. Uh, there may be a few who, who voted for, um, what's his name, Bolisario. Bol- yeah. There might be a few who voted for Bolisario, um, but they're, they're not they're not going to be all sort of extreme right wing and I just don't want us to think that this little pocket of American Christianity and whatever little um, colonies it has around the world should be defining the movement retrospectively, currently and prospectively so yeah at the moment I'm willing to try to keep a low profile the way I use the word but we've got to play the long hand on this Eventually, I think the word will recover its proper meaning based on the actual beliefs and practices of it, rather than making evangelicalism the boogeyman of the progressive media. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's any risk, at least in the American context? And I totally, I think you make a very, very insightful observation about the particularities, the cultural particularities that have shaped American evangelicalism, which are out of step actually with the rest of the globe, which makes it in linguistic terms a bit of an isolate. It's not sort of connected to the rest of the Mm. language. But I suppose the countervailing force there is demographically 
and in terms of political influence, evangelic evangelicalism is, let's face it, big in the US in a way it's not in Australia, never has been. And maybe there's a couple of cases in Latin America because there are some other Latin American countries where evangelicalism is going gangbusters. I don't know about Africa, but it's said to be growing big time there. But in terms of its demographic and cultural weight, notwithstanding its idiosyncrasies in America, <laughs> it is a really big, prominent force. And I think that sucks a lot of our attention. And that's how I would explain why a lot of evangelicals in Australia, even though they are demographically and politically in a much, much more marginal mm. context in Australia, they're all following American evangelical, political and theological figures. And there's a, a very clear influence that was, I think, really became quite prominent during the Trump era. And, and this is one thing that really surprised me as a political theologian. I, if you had have asked me beforehand, I would not have predicted this, but I was surprised at the number of sort of evangelical Christians in Australia that were really inspired by Trump became kind of Trumpists in a yeah. in a uh, strange kind of way. But that that was a bit of a preamble to asking a specific question. You can you can comment and go wherever you want. But I do wonder, given there's a fragmentation. Okay, we, we take that as accepted, as given. But given uh, it seems there's evidence that people are abandoning the term, which uh, I think is probably what we, what you might call the non-political or the non-aligned centre. They're walking away and they're like, well, I don't want, I don't, I don't want, it's not just the Trump stuff, it's this sort of uh, progressive stuff that has just, you know, taken... The tradition in a way that mm. let's face it calvin wouldn't have recognized yeah. at, at, at that extreme over there is there a problem do you think there's any risk that those for whom if you like the those really preserving that theological sense actually abandon the term and then the term actually remains with the highly politicized <laughs> and oh. so then actually the movement loses its kind of historical connection in that theological thing and i know you said obviously it's not about the it's not a linguistic tradition that you belong to, um, but do you think there's any danger of that? I, 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 uh, let me say two things. Um, first of all, I think in the American context, again, you have to understand not every evangelical is a Trump voter. Mm. Let, let me give you two examples. I once had lunch with uh, Professor Robert Sloan, former president of Baylor University, who is the current president of Houston Baptist University, and this is like 2016, I had lunch with him. And he says, he said, you know, he said, I could never vote for Hillary Clinton. I could never vote. But he says, every time Trump comes on the TV, I just want to curse. Okay. So this is a guy, a white male evangelical in the very epicenter of evangelicalism, one of the most powerful institutional uh, educational tertiary leaders of the country, who was a definite never Trumper. Or to, to give another example, Russell Moore, who was the head of the Southern Baptists political lobbying group called the ERLC. Um, he went on Twitter and and was decrying some of the things that Trump was doing, sort of the racism, the sexism, um, you know, the you know joking about assault, sexually assaulting women. And then you had Donald Trump come out and attacking him. So the idea that a, a Republican presidential nominee would attack the Southern Baptist political representative in Washington goes to show that there was a definite fissure in there. And it was between those who said being a Christian is a good way to be a Republican against those who thought being a Republican might be an expedient way to be a Christian. 
Okay, that was the rupture. Whether the goal was to be a Republican or the goal was to be a Christian, that, that is, and that divide is still there. There are a whole bunch of never Trump evangelicals, and that's one thing that is lacking. Though I admit that at the cultural level, people who are white and vaguely Protestant will call themselves evangelical, and they will go for um, Trump or, or, or that brand of politics, and are even willing to indulge his sexism, his uh, his his racism because he gives them access to a certain degree of political power. So that's, a, that's the first qualification. I think we've misunderstood what evangelicalism is in the U.S. Okay. Secondly, as for people who therefore want to abandon the term for its expediency or because of what's happening to it, I say, fine, I understand. You know, go with God. You know, call yourself whatever you want. You know, the Holy Church of Snoop Pope Daddy. <laughs> you know, whatever... whatever t- Whatever term you want to call yourself. Hopefully something better than that. Yeah, well, I mean, I think Snoop Pope Daddy is a good idea. I mean... Uh, you, you, that, you might get a bishop in that church. Uh, yeah, I you might. You could be the archbishop, I the could pope. Be, yeah, the, I could be the, the grand poobah. No, I, I want to be the Snoop Pope Daddy. Oh, okay, there you go. Um, yeah. of, that, of that church. Call yourself whatever you like, uh, but then keep up the, the spiritual disciplines, keep the faith, keep the creed, keep the confession. Uh, that, that kind of thing going. I mean, the... the, the Again, I think it's a good, evangelical is a good word because it's got the evangel in it. But if people are genuinely concerned about its connotations, if it's hindering the mission in their context, like, you know, for example, if you're doing um, missional work somewhere in America like Portland, you know, which is a pretty progressive place, or somewhere like Austin or Massachusetts, using the word evangelical could end up meaning you attract people who are vaguely Protestant and who are keener on Trump than they are on Jesus. Uh, and it could also mean you'll be off-putting to your neighbours. So, you know, for the sake of mission, I don't mind if people want to stick the word um, in the bottom drawer and then just focus on the, the, the tradition of, of piety and renewal and, and promoting the gospel. I mean, that, that, I think that's fine. I think that's fine. But I think in the long term, we're going to realise for those people who did keep the faith, who didn't fall into the temptation of uh, Caesarizing their religion, to use something of a turn. I think in, in, a, in a retrospective sense, we're going to regard them as evangelicals. Even if they did not use the term, they were still having the, you know, the, 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 very, the, the, the praxis and beliefs that would define evangelicalism. Mm. The, let me ask you this, because there, there's a very obvious why question that's kind of the elephant in the room here, it seems to me. I think we can agree and, and we're not breaking hugely new ground here it's obvious trump split the evangelical movement up until that point it had become been on a trajectory of gaining more and more political influence and power we it seems like a lifetime ago but when you think of george uh w bush uh, oh, know, how it, we miss him now. How we miss him. <laughs> At the time, we demonized him. He was the, Everyone was calling him the worst president in American history. Yeah. And then Trump said, hold my beer. Well, that, yeah. this is the fascinating thing, actually, about um, political legacies. They're almost completely shaped by who comes after and what happens after. Because, I mean... Yeah. Yeah. You know, Thanks, I th- Obama. I yeah. thought John Howard was a reasonably solid prime minister, not the most inspiring bloke some things about him were a bit he had these kind of stubborn annoying stubborn areas but he was a gen, generally competent but almost a little lackluster but then along came Rudd Gillard Rudd <laughs> Abbott Turnbull uh, Morrison and suddenly he looked like a genius and like this 
suddenly what seemed like kind of you know reasonably good looked very virtuous and successful because you suddenly realize actually it's no small thing to govern for 13 years or whatever it was yeah. uh, and hold your own party together and and run a reasonably reasonably good economy and so i do think um trump has ameliorated george w bush's oh yeah definitely <laughs> definitely i, I, I bet funny I, way. I bet i bet george w is I, I bet there's a number of journalists at the new york times or at the uh, at the washington post who, who are writing letters saying george I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when I said you were the worst, yeah, I think that's that's. Well, definitely... In all seriousness, see the 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 other interesting thing here is that uh, in the journalistic commentator scene, see when you when you when you embark on a rhetoric of hyperbole, you really paint yourself into a corner because, of course, there are things to criticise with George W. Bush. He really screwed up Iraq. There's no no doubt about mm. that. Abby, he wasn't a genius, a political genius. He wasn't a genius of any. And he saw, I think he was a decent man. And I think he was a genuine evangelical mm. um, yeah. believer. This is why I thought of him, because I, I went back to the... That, that in a way, was the sort of apogee of a what seemed like, a, if I could call it establishment, evangelical political influence, where you had this sort of bona fide evangelical in the office. We heard a lot about the evangelical vote, and it was, you know, mm. Karl Rove was there um, pulling the strings... But yeah, the hyperbole is, of course, the sort of New York Times and and the Washington Post, you know, wrote about him like he was the worst political leader to ever walk the face of the earth. Every new until re- Trump came along, which yeah. is possibly why they had to go the whole neo-Nazi racist thing, which I think was overblown with oh, Trump I, because I there was nowhere yeah. to go after yeah. demonizing, as you said. Yeah, um, yeah, well, I mean, after being called a Nazi, you've got nothing left. <laughs> There's no more insults. Yeah, you can you you've got. Um, yeah. yeah, that's right. And and quite frankly, this this is this is the shocking thing. Trump is not as bad as it gets. Oh, I know. I mean, so I know, yeah. So the idea that uh, you know, if if another president came along, wouldn't be a Democrat president, no matter how bad they were. If we're talking about this type of uh, rhetoric, but you could you could get more incompetent. You could could get genuinely racist in a more systematic kind of um, factual. <laughs> manner you get far more manipulative you can actually get worse character and i think trump was a very poor character but i mean you could have someone sort of you could get a putin like thing where where you start executing your opponents and you, you yeah, exactly knocked and off i mean there are you look at not you know north korea there's a bit of a gap between just a bit of a gap between trump and north korea i and, think and i, don't I, know I did find this i did find this frustrating the look again i was i'm no fan of trump both his his personality some of his policies, but I, I mean, I thought some policies were good. The, the economy did do a Same. lot better. I thought he made some good judicial appointments. Mm. He actually did a lot for religious freedom and for LGBT rights abroad. He did some good work trying to get peace in the Middle East b- between Israel and Hanay, even in the Balkans. Uh, and yeah. you could ar- you could actually argue that last year, the Trump administration probably did a lot more for peace than any other U.S. administration in recent years. But I just cannot for the life of me imagine Donald Trump getting a peace prize. I, I don't know who's going who's gonna to say, hey, how about the, the, the Israel stuff and the, the stuff in the Balkans? Maybe yeah. we should give Trump a peace yeah. prize. Uh, I can't I imagine. said Obama did cough and got one. Yeah, I know. Well, no, Obama got a peace prize for not being George W. Bush. Yeah, <laughs> that, which, which again is reflective of the hyperbole. Exactly, that, exactly. That the flip side of hyperbole is then the person that comes after you, and we're seeing this a bit with um, uh, 
with uh, Joe Biden, they become beatified instantly. Because, yeah, oh, yeah. Because by just, like, as you say, by just literally standing on the podium and not being their predecessor, suddenly they are... The, there was a New York you know, Times journalist who got who got in trouble because when Joe uh, Biden's plane landed in Washington, she says, oh, I've got goosebumps. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I mean, how are you going to hold the powers accountable yeah, when you... you got you goosebumps. Look, <laughs> no, when you look like you've just overdosed on sycophantanol. Yeah. You know, I mean... <laughs> How are we going to trust you? Like, good, strong, independent journalism. Yeah. It's kind of, it's, yeah, I mean, that is, that, that is, that is the problem of the, of the bifurcated American press scene, that it's just so, um, it's so tribal. Yeah. And, you know. And you get these distortions on the right, obviously. When yeah, you, exactly. When you, yeah, like Fox like, News, it's the same, you know. Yeah. All Democrats are evil, all Republicans are angelic. But if you go to CNN or MSNBC, like, I, I wrote an article about flipping through the channels, yeah. going from Tucker Carlson to Rachel Maddow. Yeah. And it's it's that both of them live in fantasy worlds. Yeah. Now, whether you're talking about the conspiracy theory of Dominion voting machines or you've got the conspiracy theories of Russia, yeah. um, nothing. I mean, conspiracy theories are how one group of elites without power critique another group of elites with power by duping the yeah. masses into thinking. And America was founded yeah. on a conspiracy yeah. theory. But that's a, that's, 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 a, that's a long story. But, yeah, I think Trump was made out to be worse than he was. Mm. And if the worst thing he does is some really angry, immature, juvenile, narcissistic tweets, that is a lot better than someone rounding up their political opponents yeah. and executing them. But people were talking as if Trump was already doing that. And, and, and that then, I think, lessened or you could argue it trivialized, you know, what was going on in Russia, yeah, you know, what's going on in, in China, what's going on in North Korea or in other places around the world where you have real dictatorships. You know, no journalists were locked up and murdered. Yeah. You know, um, you know, um, Ginsburg, the, um, the, um, the late judge, she, she died, yeah. you know, you know in, in, a, in a hospital or a thing. She was not, you know, taken out and shot up against a wall. And... The, the the hyperbole of of both sides of the press, depending yeah. on who's in power, yeah. um, it really is it really is annoying. And and trying to find some sensible journalism to give fair, even reporting about the pros and the cons of political leaders. But even now, all journalism has become some form of extreme activism. Yeah. And whether that's Fox or MSNBC, and we know which I love channel surfing in America, just to see both but both crazy circuses. Take you twenty four uh, hours just to get through the thousand million channels they've got. Oh, it's good, but the best part is the pharmaceutical ads. That's what I love when I go to America. Oh. Uh, it's it's terrific. Yeah, kind of like you know a new a, a new medication for something about you know um um hem hemorrhoids. Yeah, and says you know could cause deafness anal bleeding and death and, and like so you get this short ad and all these long they're like gosh you know, yeah, yeah, deafness yeah. anal bleeding and death <laughs> what the why would anyone take this I don't, I don't. It, it says a lot about American culture and it's interesting because the the ads tell you a lot about, about a culture I spent a couple of weeks in Lebanon some years ago and I just saw this remarkable ad that could falafel have, good falafel oh good falafel uh, I don't actually like falafel but I like the um, shawarma because you realise there's no such thing as kebab in the Arab world. That's a, I think, a Turkish thing. But anyway, in Lebanon, it's a shawarma. But um, there was this ad for a security company, and it was like, you know, car bombings, assassinations. And it was ranked for all like threats <laughs> that you might need security. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, this was like 
just shortly after a spate of assassinations yeah. of prime ministers and the like, and I thought, okay, you know, I've been, I mean, Lebanon, I'm never going to see this ad, even in America. That's probably yeah. going a little bit too far. Yeah. And in America, you probably don't need that kind of security because you've got your AR-15 to defend yourself anyway. Yeah, in Australia, we get ads for things like VIPoo, you know, how to, um, how to make the bathroom smell good after yeah, you've yeah. kind of desecrated it. Yeah. Yeah. But we do, we do have the, the, the extreme safety ads, or we used to, these like, which I remember foreigners kind of being really shocked at, you know, those very confronting, um, what were they, TAC ads or whatever they were yeah. across Australia, just, uh, which is a bit, it's a bit like the anal bleeding. It's a different form of that. It's like, you know, if you fall asleep for one millisecond, this is what you're going to look oh, like, like sm- wrapped around sm- the tree. Smoke alarms and stuff oh, like yeah. that. Yeah, um, yeah. Ca- car car accidents. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, could, you could say we had that. A lot of our news reporting is based around safety. Like, you look at a current affairs. Let me tell you about the three detergents we believe cause dementia. That's right. You know, yeah, it's, right. it's always some sort of thing to be scared that's of. Right. Fear, well, fear sells. Yeah, let me fear tell you sells. about the one person out of 20 million uses of this one device or object that strangled the, yeah. <laughs> the three-year-old. But um, we're a little off track, but that, that was very fun. We'll get, we'll get there again. I just wanted to say that I, I actually will go even further than you and say that this kind of re- reporting, at least on the left, is highly offensive when people are literally living in gulags in places like um, North Korea oh, and okay. where a political threat is you do have to walk around with an armed escort because your political government may knock you off at any second just for reporting about them. Oh, yeah. I'm currently reading, um, or in my audio books, re-listening to George Orwell's 1984. Oh, great. And it's a scary book because it's scary because how much of, like, of happens now. Mm. And I'll never look at my Google box the same again, like the telly screen. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it is. And one of the things that does concern me with, certainly with the political left in Australia, that for them, you know, if they read you know, 1984, you can't help but think that they'd be cheering for Big Brother. That's, well, that's, that's maybe maybe they have read it, and that's part of the problem. Well, that may I didn't well realise be... that it was actually a, a very subtle critique of um, authoritarianism. Yeah, I know, and that's um, <laughs> and and that does that does bother me because I think one of the biggest challenges or the biggest threats to our secularism uh, or our multicultural uh, democracy is uh, a political setup that a American philosopher Stephen Macedo calls civic totalism. Mm. Civic totalism is where you have a plenipotentiary state who believes it must control and direct the consciences of the citizens towards end congruent with the progressive state's goals. So you can have a bit of religion, but if religion detracts from the state's progressive vision, then the religion got to change. And that is what I'm really worried about. And if I had to situate it politically as it applies to religion, I mean, it's not like 1984, that kind of of dystopian, you know, uh, post-apocalyptic world sort of a thing. That's a bit more North Korean, that that kind of really overt in your face. Yeah, for me, it's it's more like a cross between what I would say would be the Third French Republic and the Soviet Union. Mm. Okay, now the Third French Republic was a distinctly anti-Catholic Republic, because they they did not like the Catholics, because they were all royalists, you know, who wanted to bring back you know the the Bourbons or something like that, and the late nineteenth, early twentieth century. So, what I'm worried about is we could get some sort of authoritarianism done in the name of a sort of you know progressive series of values that believes it must control as much of citizens' individual consciences, including their religion, mm-hmm. and that's that's what I'm that's what I'm kind of um, scared out. I mean, in, in hopefully within a year, my next book 
coming out is called Religious Freedom in a Secular Age, where I'm looking at some of those issues. But I think civic totalism describes precisely um, the sort of political arrangement that some on the left aspire to, to an all-powerful state armed with the weapons of surveillance, media, um, you know, with the the wider media on their side, uh, to to create a kind of quasi sort of authoritarianism. I totally agree, and and it's interesting because I think we overlook sometimes what I would call cultural totalitarianism. Oh, yes. It's I mean everything you say about the government is completely right, and I share the same concern about um, what might happen. But if you if you look at the interesting thing about cancer culture is it's a kind of peer driven. phenomenon in that it's not even labor governments kind of from a top-down sort of putting pressure on companies or or sporting organizations or this and that it's kind of uh self-forming citizen groups Mm. applying pressure through new technological tools like twitter and facebook and social media where it's it's possible to amplify and broadcast in a negative way something someone has said and then applying pressure up Yep. as citizens on employers whether it's a university or this or that and it's also literally peers as in it might be your colleagues at a university department that yep. are trying to get you cancelled and the government's not even in the picture here and then yep. the whole decision comes down to some there might be some disciplinary hearing and so it, it very much is um, maybe cultural totalitarian is the wrong word it's a kind of civic uh, like you say it's a, it's a kind of civic totalitarianism and if anything that is out front of the government and this is where 1984 is actually very instructive and interesting because there it's a very 20th sort of a you know mid 20th century view of how politics works it's very top down big, all-encompassing literal leviathan in the hobbesian sense which yep. which is governing and directing everything which is why i say it's it's a very north korean thing whereas i actually think most of the pressure is coming uh from below which makes it very difficult a to analyze and assess because well, it's kind yeah. of autonomous and independent and governments are playing catch-up i think in terms of all, all this change is going on in the culture and we're not really sure is there a legislative response how do we do it how yeah. do we well that's right and there was a uh, there was an italian political philosopher who was very big that you know marxism should be ex- expressed as a type of cultural phenomenon not necessarily so if you it's probably if you, Gramsci was it yeah Gramsci that's that's who it was sorry I don't know my Italian you know you, you, you Marxize the culture through movies art whatever yeah. and that's 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 how it seeps down along those lines yeah I mean the the social media has made it possible for interest groups to use mass mass pressure and popularity to target specific individuals and then the institution now whether that's a company or a university or anything then feels this pressure of mm. being bullied and you see that in, in you know you see that in all sorts of ways. You know the ones I'm particularly concerned about are feminist academics uh, I know who have stood up for the existence of biological women as a category. Mm. Now mm. let me say this: this sort of yeah, the idea of trans rights is a complicated um, topic, and I, I I don't speak with any malevolence or malice. I, I mean I'm, I've got a reasonable understanding of gender dysphoria and some of the communities, but. The idea that belief in a, a biological sex is somehow a hate crime mm. um, 
against another class of people, which deserves you to be removed from your post. And, and here, I would say the, the, the main issue you've got, for my mind, are things like uh, employment, employment law and freedom of speech. Uh, to quote Salman Rushdie, um, no one has the right not to be offended. And certainly because some people don't like what a British academic tweeted, mm. like I believe that you know biological women are real and, and that, that biological sex is not a social construct. Yeah. Um, even if you're offended by that, you, should not, you do not have the right or the ability to have that person sacked, removed, censured, silenced. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I am concerned, um, but we've got to be careful. We've got to remember that this applies not just to the views we support, but also applies to the views we don't like. Indeed. Okay, and the problem is everyone hates cancel culture when it's their tribe getting cancelled. But when it's the other tribe getting cancelled, oh, well, we've obviously got to shut that person down. Um, I remember there was that um, uh, female Muslim author. You know, um, she just popped into my mind. I think it was Abdul Magid. Abdul Magid, who's, yeah. who, who, who picked Anzac Day, who said, let us never forget, and you know, also yeah. Palestine or something. Yeah. Now, I thought that was in bad taste. I thought, I thought I didn't think she had to be handed out of the country. Yeah, I, 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 yeah I, thought, I thought that was... And she apologised. Yeah. And she did apologize. Yeah, yeah. The sincerity may not have been 100%, but, you know, that, that's, that's the one aspect of cancel culture is the pressure. The other thing I think cancel culture gets, not when people... I mean, cancel culture operates in two ways. Number one, someone's got a view that is offensive to some segment. Okay, it's mm -hmm. transphobic, it's, you know, anti-Asian um, or something like that. So you've got some academic, but then you've got something somebody said in the past. And there was a famous case of a uh, of an uh, American journalist. Um, I can't remember her name. It's got, like a Scottish name. Uh, she was she was about to be appointed as in the new Teen Vogue editor. But like ten years ago, when she was seventeen, she said some stupid things about Asians. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. I read okay. about this. Yeah. And and she lost her job. Yeah. Uh, and the, the appointment. This is a black woman who's lost her job for. <laughs> yeah, for some and. She was hired because. Then the, I think the her name Wokester, was McCammon. McCammon, I think yeah, was his name. It was the um, Devil Wears Prada woman who appointed her because there was some. There was the classic woke story where there are there are complaints about the lack of diversity from the yeah. staff under. So they, they, she went out uh, winters. I think you know she went out and found a good young up and coming black woman who then ended up, yeah, <laughs> falling victim to the absurdities of the council. But, and, but here's the other thing. Um, you've got the, for, for the contemporary stuff, I think it's freedom of speech and employment law. Employees should back their, uh, employers must back their employees mm. and never, never cave to the mob because if they do it once, they'll do it again. But also I think for people who have done and said stupid things which they regret, this is where I think we need uh, redemption. And I remember there was a, uh, through, a gr through a great magazine I read called Quillette, I remember reading a story of a journalist who used to be part of the cancel culture until mm. he got cancelled. And he said, he said something, on it was a very Christian thing. He said, when did we start, stop rooting for redemption? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I think that's the two things we need against cancel culture, a belief in forgiveness and redemption, and secondly, uh, the courage to affirm freedom of speech for peoples whose speech we even find offensive. Yeah. Okay, we've got to protect not just the speech we like, but also the speech we don't like. And I think that's very imperative. The problem is we only play the freedom of speech card when it's the speech we like. Yeah, it's like, uh, I think a parallel here is freedom of religion. Because exactly. I, I have had, uh, you, you, you possibly don't know, and you could be forgiven for not knowing, but I, I worked a lot on Islamist terrorism, both in a couple of intelligence services. Uh, I, I am or was a pretty good Arabic speaker. 
studied Islamic theology at uni, did a lot of work on that. And I used to have some interesting debates with conservatives yeah. about... And, so, and some of those conservatives, including conservative Christians, with me privately, were flirting with the idea of regulating what Muslims could preach in, yeah. in mosques. Which is what they're trying to do now in France, which is what yeah, yeah. Macron wants to do now in no, France, simply, is regulate Islam. I simply made the point that um, I will defend their right to say whatever the hell they want in a mosque because I want churches to be able to... I do not want the government yep. telling what can and cannot be preached in a church. And freedom of religion cuts both ways. So exactly, you can't, yeah. you, you, if you go down this path of regulating what Muslims can teach in a mosque, you're going to cut your legs off. Exactly. Well, exactly. Cause a government who has the power to control speech in a mosque also has the same power to control speech in a church or a synagogue or a Hindu temple or a, a Buddhist yeah. monastery. And that's why we, 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 we do need to defend the religious freedom of others. That's right. And what, do, they, what, what do these people think the moment the government goes down that route? Yep. They're going to be activists, whether it's the LGBTIQ lobby or the secular, various secular organizations. The next step is going to, okay, well, you've done this with mosques. Let's be consistent. Look at all this hate speech being yeah. preached in churches. Exactly. The, one, one, something that really um, struck me, I, did you see the Q&A episode with Martin Niles um, that was on, uh, I think it was Thursday? I saw parts of it. I saw yeah. parts of it. It's the first um, episode I've watched in years. and uh, It's an abysmal show in my, my view. It's, 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 oh, it's so, it's so it's loaded. It's, it's just, so loaded uh, to the left. It's, not, it, it's, it's the most politically transparent um, piece of trash <laughs> on the ABC. And I actually like some of the stuff on the ABC. So that's... That's saying a lot. It's not that they're all they're all trash, but I I read with interest the the comments on the Q and A Facebook page mm, in yep. the lead up, which was all about Martin and um, Martin's been on the show, and I'm personal friends with him, so I, I yeah. know him off. I've, I've met Martin off camera. Fantastic guy. I really like him, and and it was just a massive pile on of like hundreds of comments. They didn't, they didn't, no other panelist was mentioned. Yeah. And the thing that kept coming up is, oh no, I'm not watching some someone with someone that does hate speech. And the interesting thing is, of course, this question of hate came up and Martin addressed it actually just like beautifully because there was, there was a gay guy there talking about, I can't remember the exact context, but Martin very forcefully said, you know, this is not about hate. Hate is a sin. And it's not that Christians hate anyone anyway and and what i know of martin personally that guy has no hate yeah. in his heart whatsoever he's a genuine person but i i think the fact that everything he says and everything the acl stand acl stands for whatever your position on it mm. this term the fact that so casually branded or branded as hate speech just tell, tells you i thought of this because of the mosque thing mm. that that it's a small step. It may not even... <laughs> Maybe the Muslims are worried about what's going to happen with Christianity first, which might then blow yep. back on them in terms of regulation. But once a consensus builds that um, even if someone like Martin Niles, no matter how relaxed, how, you know, he doesn't mm. he doesn't emit hate whatsoever. Okay, he's strong and he can be forceful, but it's clearly he never loses his cool and it's not coming out of a, a place of anger. The moment you can brand the ideas as yep. hate speech, uh, then it kind of logically follows in this climate that you start regulating or preventing the hate speech. And I think hate speech is the most abused concept coming out of the well, it's, left Again, it's used so broad to be meaningless. Now, the idea is here, you know, impute all of the bad motives. Imagine mm. your opponents as being heinously evil 
and then that justifies your own authoritarian uh, you know, push down on them. So, I mean, that, that's it. I mean, part of it's a little bit people who catastrophize, mm. who think, obviously, you know, because of Martin Isles, you know, thousands of LGBT people are now going to c- go out and commit mass suicide yeah. after his performance on Q&A, the, the TV show. Uh, so imagine your opponent as evil as he can be, and then yeah. that justifies your own kind of crack. I mean, that's, that's, yeah. that's, that's what and, this and is all about. And just casually say his speech harms people and kills people. No one ever produces any evidence yeah. of that at all. Well, now, you only, have, course, to, you only have to imagine it. Just imagining it is... Yeah, and um, there are LGBTIQ people who do suffer, and some of them do take their lives, and it might be because of prejudice and bullying. But again, show me the evidence that it's this man's speech. Exactly. <laughs> and no one, I've, no one has ever produced that evidence, and that's because I suspect there is none. Yeah, that that may well be the case, but that is uh, you, you can you can see from the way the Q and A used Martin in the publicity, or, or you can see the way Q and A. Um, I mean, what I found fascinating was the amount of attention Margaret Court got from the ABC. Yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. Um, I, I remember it was like the week it was the first week where Joe Biden took office. Yeah. Uh, the UK was kind of like at war, about to go to war with the, with um the EU over the vaccine. Yeah. Um, there was all these natural disasters for about four days. Yeah. The top headlines on the ABC were all about Margaret Court. Yeah. Um, for those who don't know, uh, is a famous tennis player. Uh, the most successful female tennis player who's an evangelical pastor um, who has sometimes made some um, very uh, naked uh, pronouncements about uh, homosexuality, which has incurred her the ire of the uh, progressive media. Uh, So it really is just a magnet. Now, I don't know whether the ABC does this out of their own ideological uh, uh, need, Mm. Or their own predilection, or because it just gets a lot of airtime mm, with with their yeah. readership. It could be it could be a bit of both, but you'd have to say out of out of all the issues that were going on in the world that week, I would not have put Margaret Court yeah. and and anything to do with her like in my top five, you know, uh, or even probably my probably wouldn't make my top fifty. Oh, sure, it would make my top one hundred. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, with respect to to Margaret Court, who's a a giant of Australian sport. I mean, she's not a particularly prominent pastor and to mm. just pick on this one pastor's pronouncements on homosexuality or one issue or another out of the thousands of pastors in Australia when okay she, she her position within Christianity is not what it was in tennis with yep. respect and so again it reminds me of 1984 where they have to have their daily two minutes of hate yeah. <laughs> okay. They're two minutes of hate every day. Yeah. And in the in the uh, 1984 novel, it's against this chap called Goldstein, who seems to be a, a member of the party who is leading a faction against Big Brother, and he he must be objectified as the most evil person there possibly yeah. is. Yeah. And I, I think you see this, you know, the way that the media wants to demonize certain people, and it's. And if you, it's 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 kind of like what did someone tell me at the current culture? You know, imagine you know those those teenage vampire movies where the vampires are hunting down the teenagers. Yeah. Um, oh, he yeah, says yeah. what you have to realize is that in the current narrative, you are the vampire. Yeah. Okay. That's what you have. That's what you have to yeah. uh, remember. So I, I do think there is a slight Orwellian that they have to yeah. keep resurrecting this Christian boogeyman who is this um, a figure of unimaginable 
trans and and homophobia yeah. and you've got to yeah. keep bringing up and keeping the hate fresh yeah okay to keep the cause going now there are there are there are genuine issues about the treatment of lgbt people uh you know and i'm not going to defend everything churches say do at the time but th- th- this this need to take this relatively insignificant ex-tennis player come pastor mm. and to focus on that over against everything else that is happening in the world right yeah. now tells us something about our political yeah. commentary and how's this going that I, I find i just find perplexing i've got an idea but uh, i mean I'm, it, i was just struck because you know if that one instagram post by israel falau was so harmful that it risked actual human lives in the LGBTIQ community, <clears throat> then surely Rugby Australia and the media are complicit in any of those deaths by amplifying it yeah. and yeah. replaying the Instagram. I don't follow him on Instagram. I, I'm not into yeah. rugby at all. I never would have known about that. Yeah. But then I can almost quote it off by heart and know every sing- single thing about it because we discussed it for weeks because... If Rugby Australia had have just ignored it and mm. no one reported it, and again, okay, he's a he's a there's uh, <laughs> a parallel here with Margaret Court because he's a uh, prominent. I'm reliably informed by those people that don't know that Aussie rules is actually a, a real sport. That he's great, and I, I'll, I'll take their word word for it. But um, like, he's not a significant commentator, so. Yeah. With respect to Israel Falau, who cares what he puts on his? Yeah, <laughs> I'm not I, interested actually. I, I, again, what's on his social media? Again, to I mean, what I find I mean, there's there's several things I want to say here about Israel Falau. Uh, number one, I think it was blown out of all proportion. Okay, uh, to, to be honest though, I do find it a little odd that the Instagram account, what he says, may sound you know retrograde to certain people and harsh and hostile. But why you would sack him, and yet you can have a rugby player who commits domestic violence, yeah. uh, and then after a brief court appearance and a fine and paying some money to his ex-girlfriend, is then allowed to play in six-week time, quite frankly, baffles me. In terms of proportionality, mm. um, this is way over it. I mean, someone's Instagram count is far worse than actual acts of domestic violence. Uh, that said, secondly, I, I, I don't quite understand why the Australian Christian lobby has has kind of um, cleaved Israel Falau to their chest and made themselves the personal protector and defender. I mean, he's got enough money, he can look after himself with lawyers and advocates and, you know, friends. So why the ACL has has really focused on him as this sort of icon to be um, uh, protected, uh, I can see the symbolic and the public and the media value, but I'm not too sure... Um, going all out for Lau is going to be a long-term strategy. Um, but so that's, that's my two thoughts. I don't understand why it is an issue, but I'm also a little bit uh, dumbfounded as to why Christians have been quite so earnest mm. to um, to turn him into a, uh, a hero. Because to be honest, he does need a lot more nuance in what, in what, the, in what the young man, when he speaks about religion and faith. Yeah, I mean, again... From a evangelistic, apologetic, um, kerygmatic, just trying to pull out all my Greek words here, approach. Was it prudent? Was it wise? Did it read the culture moment right? Uh, I don't think so. Certainly not the kind of uh, shtick I go in for. But again, he's not a preacher, which again is (laughs) 
which goes to your first point, which is why why would you elevate the sort of religious rhetoric of a football player with the utmost respect to Israel Falau? You know, it'd be like sort of um, hanging me or you up on our own petard for our comments on rugby. Like, yeah. who cares what Michael Bird or Jonathan Cole cares about rugby? If Israel Falau was well, in Victoria, who not, cares about rugby? Well, yeah. <laughs> Right? Is, that, is that still a thing? Yeah. Yeah. I um. Yeah. I should. I shouldn't mock rugby so much because uh, Victoria is actually my poorest state in terms of demographics. I just put down that down to the fact that there aren't enough good discerning conservatives in the in this state, and uh, and I'm big in New yeah, South well, Wales hey, and I, Queensland, it's, it's so true. I've got to be careful. Hey, I, call, here. <laughs> I, I call Melbourne. I call Melbourne Melbourne grad. Melbourne yeah. grad. Okay. I've Melbourne heard, grad. I've heard Danistan. Now I've got Melbourne grad, but the. I am concerned by the, the cynical humor down here, although I get it, but it's very gulag-esque. And um, I, I guess that's what happens when you, you live in the state. I, I live in actually a state that on paper's more left-wing. Well, it's not a state, it's a territory. But uh, I imagine a lot of listeners, and a lot of Victorians wouldn't realize that we actually have a Greens Labor coalition government and have had for a while that where the Greens actually have people in the cabinet and hold ministries. This is the only, this is the uh, furthest left government in Australia. Sweet and yet, of Melchizedek. And yet, oh, man. and yet, it's not as bad as Victoria. <laughs> so, oh, uh, no, ponder no. that one, my Victorian listeners. But I, I, I actually have a, um, I've got a hypothesis. Okay. And, and actually, I can't string this into a good psychological theory because that's not my, that's not my area. Could be something to do with keeping disgust at the out group. Surely. Well, I think I think that's part of it. I think I think what's happening is a process of scapegoating. Now, if you think about the way the cultural climate has gone, it's now so PC you can't even make an off-color joke. So you can't say anything except praise and adoration for the LGBTIQ community. Uh, if you're a man, you've now got to praise everything woman stands for has has done. And I don't actually have a problem with a lot of this stuff. And, and I just take it for granted that we're all adults talking and listening. We know there have been great injustices in the mm. past, and I want to see those rectified. Um, you know, we've got to be super sensitive about our history. So every aspect of our identity and our social relationships has become so fraught and conducted on eggshells. Christians, you know, we need a group that we can dump on where we can be openly openly do all the things we're not allowed to do in any other circumstance because it would be inconsistent. And so now we're painting particularly conservative Christians theologically and politically as these hate-mongered racist bigots. And everyone can pour out that invective that is on every human heart, which they cannot even sniff at in really every other zone and group. You know, Muslims, you can't say anything about Muslims. Hindus, no. Multiculturalism different races we've all got to pretend it's all the same but christians have become this safe group the lightning rod the scapegoat where we can pour out our disgust and invective i just pulled that theory out then i don't know if yeah i, I think it. i think there's a little bit of truth that um christians certainly traditional or conservative or evangelical christians are certainly the topic the, of our discussion yeah. are certainly the one group you can you're allowed to hate but i i would say um i, I think the idea is here you've got to keep because uh, here's the thing, we're becoming more tribal, and the tribes are united by what they hate. Yeah. So that that's what's going on. We're, we're tribal, and the tribes are not united by creed, confession, like liberal democracy. The tribes are now united by what they hate. 
and what they hate is anything that's not in their tribe. L- let me let me give you the, the best example of this, and this is why this is how I really lost my faith in the ABC. And um, you had faith in the ABC. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I thought I like some of the shows and some. That's a good of the, title for an article. Luke. Yeah. You know, losing my religion how i lost faith in the abc or something. yeah i mean so here's a good example there's a um a chap i follow on twitter called warren mundine okay who's a you know uh, uh you could call him a, a national indigenous leader he's got a show on sky news about indigenous startup businesses uh he was a formerly a president of the labor party in northern territory but now more recently he's run as a liberal party candidate in certain seats. And I find him very, um, very winsome, very sensible, very fair, very balanced. An ABC journalist called Paul Bongiorno called him an Uncle Tom, okay, on yeah. Twitter, which, if you if you don't know, is, is a racial slur. Yeah. It's about a black man who willingly makes himself subservient to a white man. So to call yeah. someone an Uncle Tom is a real slur. Uh, Warren Mundine pointed this out to him, and... Bongiorno was very reluctant to admit he was wrong, though eventually he did say, okay, look, if I'm offended you, I'm sorry. But Warren Mundine then appealed to Michelle Guthrie, the then CEO of uh, the ABC, for her, for, her, for her comment on this or her response. I mean, uh, I, wanted, I think Mundine just wanted the validation that you know, he had been mistreated by an ABC journalist, or at least an ABC contract journalist. Michelle Guthrie's response... Uh, was incredible and and mundine published the letter she said what he does on twitter is his own business oh isn't that interesting isn't and i was like what my gosh i mean that this was around the same time of israel falau and his instagram account so it is okay for an abc journalist to use a racist term against an indigenous australian man because he has put himself on a slightly more conservative side of the ledger and that's when, with the ABC, I, I, this, this brazen hypocrisy, because mm. they say, hey, look, we are Switzerland, and the fact that I'm wearing a Venezuelan army uniform <laughs> should not be, be deceiving you. Don't because, let the Che Guevara t-shirt fool you. Yeah, don't let, the, um, it, don't let the Che Guevara t-shirt fool you. I am politically independent and neutral. And that's kind of where I saw behind the curtain, and I thought, I know what you people, and even the way um, particularly conservative women get treated by the ABC Uh, because every now and again one of their angry um, commentators lets flip with some uh, derogatory sexist remark and there is never an apology never any putative acknowledge they just pull it under the carpet nothing to see here folks and that is that is why in, in my mind I really do hope there is either serious reform at the ABC or or it should be destroyed, or even something worse could happen to the ABC, would be to move it from Ultimo to Campbelltown. I think that uh, the the ABC journalists would have to move away from their rich, white, inner-city progressive um, pads where they can get lots of cannabis-flavoured tofu and their $25 lattes infused (laughs) with the teardrops of a Tibetan yak, and they'd have to go live amongst the working class yeah. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, the ABC that needs to be reformed, destroyed, or moved to Campbelltown. I actually have a uh, proposal that heads in a similar direction for that to fix Q&A. And uh, I was discussing... Or just add two hosts. Get two hosts. One who's overly progressive, one who's conservative. And just say none of this pretense of neutrality. Just have two hosts, 
One's progressive, and they can bring up their each well, I team think, every. I think I think there, there's a, an even simpler um, way to do this, and I was discussing this with your um, colleague Scott Harrower. I'm going to give him a shout out because he's, he's a. He's well, a I love fan me, of the I show. love me my Scott Harrower. I love Scott Harrower. Had a great uh, chat with you, Scott, and that that is all you need to do is um, fire Hamish and appoint a centre-right host, not a conservative host necessarily, oh, yep. but someone who is right of centre Yep. because I think the progressives will still watch. But what that host can do, they're going to be comfortable having conservatives. You can then, as long as you get a producer that's in line, you can have, have a better balance of guests, which let's face it, it's not hard. Yep. Instead of having four progressives and one conservative, two on each side and maybe someone who's a bit ambiguous. Yeah, I agree. Well, I, I have someone in mind. I reckon they should get Claire Lehman. Oh, uh, yeah. She I would think be Claire Lehman would be my number one. Um, the ratings will go through the roof. Oh, they would do. That, it would that's do. Exactly but the, the ABC kind of is terrified of her. Yeah. I swear they are terrified yeah. of her. But she's a perfect example because she's not what I would call a rah rah conservative. She's no, not she's not. An ideologue or dogmatic. But she will be. But my point is this is that there's a subtlety here to my point. My point is to get balance, you need centre right. It's not yep. anything on the left. Yep. They, yeah, it just seems incapable. But a, a good, the right person on the centre right is going to have no problem letting a progressive mouth off about this and that. But they're also going to give a good opportunity to the other side. And if the point of the show yeah. is to get a, a good balance of opinion, the host has to be on the centre right. And, I, and I'm assuming the ABC is never going to appoint someone on, you know, like full on. Hardcore conservative, and, well, that, you and the show wouldn't Andrew, work. Would, then it would just be the same show with the same problem. But the yeah, show well, you would wouldn't you wouldn't want foot. like Andrew Bolt um, hosting it because it's then fun, you got that's the exact name I said to Scott when we were talking. You, you about. That, want, would, that would go the wrong direction. No, you want Andrew. Like I think for me, a Claire Lehman would be the ideal. I mean, I'd love to see you just on Q and A um, for a start. Be great to see her on anything, but well, it would I don't be. know if it's because well, she, she can't right. get on, or maybe you can't blame her. Why? What, Maybe that maybe they they're banging on her door, but why would you go on the show? Well, I don't, I don't know. Maybe someone's got a you know masochistic impulse or something. Um, well, Mark Martin showed that you know the kind of reception you're going to to get. I mean, it was just, oh, yeah, it was just a coincidence. They but got, she's got not an a Christian gay, and she's a uh, woman. Liberal. Okay, she's not yeah, a Christian, yeah, but okay. she's a woman, and she is also uh, here. Here's the here's here's the problem. A lot of us know that this some of this progressive nonsense is nonsense. Mm. But we don't want to say it because we don't want to be, you know, everyone's afraid of not being the most progressive person in the room because mm. that's how you get cancelled. Yeah. Whereas Lehman doesn't have that fear. And people will say, you know what? Yes, that's what I actually believe. Yeah. And you can't, a woman said it, so you can't hurt me, you know, yeah. Yeah, kind yeah. of a thing. And uh, to give go back to a George Orwell quote, um, something I just heard, um, common sense is the heresy of heresies. <laughs> And I think you could have someone like I mean, there could be someone else. I think I think Warren Mundine would be pretty good as well. Actually, um, yeah, he, yeah. He, he's an indigenous, and so um, I'd love to have him and Paul Bongiorno on. That would be very funny talking about racism. Hey, remember before <laughs> that time you called me a, an Uncle Tom? Yeah, you and your progressive tolerance. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd love to see something. Um, yeah, I think I think there'd be a number of people uh, who would be good, but the ABC would never ever appoint a centre right person to literally anything and the only thing they want to point them from is to is to, is to get kind of you know um overrun by the the swarm of progressives yeah. so i mean the uh the, the the token conservative who goes on q a is only there to be the villain they, yeah. they, they are there to be the darth vader the voldemort 
Uh, yeah. of that, that's their only every pur- show needs a, a baddie yeah so they're the only purpose I mean that's why I do wonder why conservatives are involved it's like like do, like why you, you just you were there to be the bad guy okay yeah, yeah. well I have I have asked myself not because this is a prospect but I was like I've, I've seriously thought to myself I mean if I was invited on Q&A I'm not sure I could justify going on because the downside just seems so big also and depends. even though it would be a great opportunity to promote yeah. the podcast it's like do you want to go through the the pain and it's so superficial you get five seconds to talk you get interrupted I mean the, the thing that was astonishing and I know I had this discussion with my wife my, my wife she's conservative in many ways but she's also quite a big feminist and uh, I said to her the one of the most interesting things about that show was the way the three women Two of them pretty young, and, and the polit- Labour politician pretty constantly talked over the top of Martin and Trent Zimmerman. And Zimmerman barely got a, a word in. They constantly interrupted Hamish, hijacked the show. At one point, one of them was asking questions directly to um, Martin. Now, of course, if Martin went on there and, did the and same. interrupted, oh, yeah. oh my goodness, the there'd be a revolution in the streets. And it just again, it goes to your point about hypocrisy. Now, of course, I don't. My complaint is not that I want to see men talking over the top of women. Hmm. What I want to see is healthy balance and respect. But I just sense we're in this we're in this moment now, where um, it's you know the and and again to be fair to Hamish, he would be crucified if he pulled those women into line. So we've got these strange new cultural taboos and rules where okay, because of the the history of sexism. If a woman talks over a man now, they've just got to put up with it. And, and there'd be plenty of progressive women who would be like, hell yeah. Yeah, I know. I exactly. want to see that. I, I want to see yeah. these women, like, give it to the these men. But if you step back objectively, this is a panel discussion show. And there's really no reason for people to talk over the top of each other. And just yesterday, that was considered rude. Yeah. And and as far as I'm concerned, it shouldn't. your gender doesn't... It, it's not rude if you have one gender and and um, sort of laudable and inspiring if you're the other gender. And this this is this is not a good thing for feminism to be going down this path because what they what they if they you know there's a risk that they they lose the bulk of men and actually mm. create some sort of hostile animosity. And there are sexism is real and there mm. really are sexist and they this just plays. Well, into but their hands. The other thing at Q&A, you can always see who they're backing by the intersectional thing they do. So they'll bring on a white male conservative and they'll have a female progressive. Mm-hmm. If they have a female conservative, they'll make sure that the progressive is black. Yeah. Okay, so that's that's what they do. So It's just like they found one of the two openly gay liberal exactly. members on the same episode that Martin Niles was on. I'm exactly. sure that was a coincidence. Yeah, so... So the way the ABC rigs it, and you see this on every program, you've got a, you can tell who they're rooting for by the sort of you know the intersectional dynamics that they've going on. So um, that, that that always tells you who the hero of the program is going to be and who's going to be the villain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I call that the Q and A code. And of course, they, you know, they control the questions. So mm. one of the interesting things, I mean, we'll get off this topic soon, and I'll just I'll just note for listeners and for you, Mike, the evangelism evangelical train left the station a long long time ago and we we were sitting there talking and we we failed to get on it so maybe we'll just let that train go because 
it's taken a life on a life of its own. But I, I saw some of the social media commentary, even amongst Christian, as you're probably aware, um, you know, there's this, this kind of Christian progressive, Christian right things bubbled to the surface and it's kind of something less than open warfare, but not too much less going on mm. with, you know, and of course, Martin Niles being on the um, Q&A program was a kind of lightning rod for the this polarization within the uh, Christian world. And it was interesting that, you know, some of the, some of his Christian critics were like, oh, you why is he kind? Why he just talks about nothing but homosexuality? And I'm thinking, the gay host invited a gay, um, liberal, MP. So two of the six people up there were gay. Got a gay guy to ask a question about Martin's views on homosexuality. Asked him about the Israel Folau thing. Got a Christian, presumably some kind of progressive Christian, to ask him why you're not talking about. <laughs> yeah. Why are you constantly talking about this issue? So, well. <laughs> The show was constructed around it, yeah, to get him to talk a lot about, about that, that, yeah, that issue. So, yep. what's he supposed to do? No, I'm sorry, I'm not going to talk about that issue. I'm going to, I'm going to talk about some other issue. Then they would say, "Well, you're avoiding the the question." So it, it's kind of damned if you do, damned if you well, don't. And, and that's and that's what you have to remember. It is you, know, you are walking into an ambush, or you are walking into a trap, and you've you've either got to know. Um, uh, be very resilient and be able to accept the blows and then sort of return uh, I don't know, use a meta- military metaphor, but return fire. <laughs> or you've got to be able to avoid trap yep. and allow and, and show your opponent you've escaped it. Um, and, and that takes a very uh, uh, distinct set of skills and also depends who your interlocutor is. But it was always going to be a lose-lose um, situation. Although, having said that, I must say, Martin... My friend did acquit himself. Very yeah, well. I thought you know, from from the clips I saw, I, th- I thought he he did he d- he did fairly well. Given the deck was stacked against. Him. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I think the the vaccination thing was his one kind of wobbly moment. With, with much love and respect to Martin, I think he overcomplicated that in a way he he didn't need to. But I just thought his performance was uh, pretty outstanding, given um, what he was up against, and you know. How many of us could have handled that situation realistically, you know, yeah, with a, such uh, poise, grace? Well, if we if we want to if we want to return back to our evangelical theme, I think we've okay, gone. Okay, it's right, run, 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 so run, and get back on the we've, train. We've kind of gone through. We started with evangelicalism, but we've talked a lot about Australian politics, uh, the the political nature of the media, uh, sort of you know certain cultural or totalitarian schemes, uh, the demonising of anyone who's not progressive. We see. Um, this does come to the issue, how do evangelicals present themselves in public? Mm. Now, do we simply say, well, okay, let's just throw all our money in the bucket of a lobby group like the Australian Christian Lobby um, to represent us in the media to uh, our political leaders in Canberra or the capital cities? Uh, is that the, the best way? Uh, or should we say, look, um, there is no safe space above the parapet, so let's just kind of retreat to our own little isolated introspective communities um, say the Lord's Prayer stay holy and pure and then come out when you know, hopefully um, uh, this, the, the culture war is over the, the, the sort of uh, radiation of the nuclear holocaust has kind of cleared and we can come out of the, yeah, we the can, bunker the we can come bunker. out and, and kind of make friends with whatever, whatever zombies are running around <laughs> um, is, is that, there, is, is that a, a, another option so that that's 
that, that's where it leads to, you know, should, should Christians want to go on a program when they know it's going to be stacked against them? Or should we simply, you know, retire to our own piety and uh, avoid the debate, avoid the controversy, and just try to, shall we say, um, live in a parallel society underground, uh, but stay invisible, which you can see a lot of attraction to that view. This is a kind of, uh, I think, Rod Dreher-esque it, it idea is. with a sort of Benedict option. That is yep. that the culture's gone to poo and what we have to do is protect what's left. And so you've got to, you know, you've got to homeschool or go to a Christian school and yep. a kind of parallel existence within the yep. larger culture without being contaminated. Yep. Now, in, in, in Dreher's defense, he doesn't mean in an absolute sense. He yep. doesn't mean like an absolute, but he says you need to create your own alternative communities, your mm. own metaphorical monasteries of learning, culture, art, music, and what have so. Uh, it's attractive. The problem I have is I'm pretty sure wherever you go, uh, the civic totalists are coming for you because your very existence is a hate crime. And this just this doesn't apply just to like LGBT stuff. Um, you know, the, the very idea you've got a group of people around in the country, you know, whether they're Christian, uh, Muslim, or Jewish, or, or whoever, that do not have the state's goals of their highest priority. And uh, in some sense, uh, detractors or critics of that state, for some, for some political persuasions, that cannot be tolerated. Mm. Okay, and uh, there is the danger that if you go, if you go to your own little alternative society, um, eventually they will come knocking on the doors of your monastery, yeah. um, uh, demanding that you go to a, a place called the Ministry of Love for re-education. Okay, so I mean, th- those those are the options. Another another one is, I mean, there are those who say, well, if you can't beat them, join them. Mm. So just uh, adopt a, a far more progressive vision of your faith and uh, get with the program. And rather than having you know religion within the limits of reason, you can have religion within the limits of political progressivism. What you can do is you can compromise on the the political side, perhaps in the mistaken notion that you can preserve the sort of biblical theological worship salvation evangelistic part yep. because you make yep. yourself acceptable to the wider society because you can tick the right boxes on the yeah. the current cultural fashions some of the people call it theological liberalism um you could also call it stockholm syndrome <laughs> uh to be to be brutal about it uh but th- those are the op- th- those are the sort yeah. of options you have and Christians, you know, I mean, th- that comes down to the, the three main options I guess we have, you know. It's the kind of, you know, the, do, be the culture warrior, go on there, fight the good fight, try to withdraw to your own sort of uh, parallel um, society, keep your head down and pray for a day it's safe to come out. Or the, um, you know, can't beat them, join them, uh, become, you know, progressivize your faith in whatever way to make yourself palatable and acceptable to the cultural powers that be. Uh, all of these problem, all of these have some very, very real, um, well, they're, they're, all of them are legitimate temptations in some way, mm. but all of them are fraught with uh, problems, uh, idolatries, and compromise. Um, there's no point fighting just because you like fighting. There's no point retreating because you're scared, or even just, you know, uh, you'll never be able to change your faith enough um, to, to be to everyone's liking. Uh, so, I mean... What's what's your what's your view, Jonathan? Is you, you uh, fight them, retreat them, or, jo- or retreat from them, or join or join them? Look, I that's a good question. I 
and perhaps slightly idiosyncratic. I agree, I agree with the way that you've um, framed that. And I'll just note as a preamble to my to answering that question that I think the as I reflect on the recent episodes around Eternity magazine, I don't know if you read it or you mm, keep I across do. that. But I do. I, I think the, the kind of interesting explosion of, if you like, progressive conservative Christian combat that has kind of run right up until the commentary on Martin Niles' appearance on um, Q&A and obviously the ACL is a big lightning rod mm. for sort of sorting out where you Well, but this sit. is not new. Like I said, you've got the ACL evangelicals and you've got the tier fund evangelicals. Yeah, I mean, that, that's always yeah. that division's but been around in for a, a way, long time. What I like about the way you framed it is, I think, or the way I would construe it, with or without your permission, is that I think we, we are both sides... And, I, and there are plenty of overreactions on the right. Don't get me started, yeah. but I'm a I'm a conservative, and this is my show, so I'm allowed to uh, enjoy a kind of dump on the left <laughs> segment because I've got the right guess for it. It seems, but I think we're all in uncharted territory. the The ship has gotten into a bit of ocean that is unmapped, and our compass is not working, and it's cloudy, and we can't read the stars. I think. This fragmentation, and this gets back to the evangelicalism, you see the the position of Christianity has changed. The culture has changed enough now that it's really unclear, actually, what the right course of action is. And you mentioned temptations. And I think, in some ways, these are new temptations in this moment for Christians, because even the progressive side is a response to a new threat, which is that there's this new pressure, there's this new hostility. You know, I often reflect that growing up as a Christian, you know, my father was a minister, a theologian. I spent the first year of my life in Newtown. He was studying at Moore College, used to go and play at um, Peter Jensen's place when he was principal of Moore College, you know, had this big sort of Sydney evangelical thing. I managed to go through my whole schooling in the 80s and early 90s. And whilst most of my friends were not Christians. I never experienced any animosity or hostility whatsoever. It was just a kind of weird thing that some people did, but it, there was a kind of benign neglect. And I guess it's because there was the consensus view. I mean, you had your sort of atheists that didn't like religion, I'm sure. And, you, and yeah. obviously you had people that had a horrific experience being abused or whatever. But I think the general thing was like, these Christians, they do their thing. They're generally good citizens. They've, they're just kind of part of the fabric. We don't really understand why they're there or what they're doing, but mm. there's no need to really worry about them. And then 20 years forward, now oh, I'm yeah. in my 40s, mm. in my lifetime, there's been a radical change. Even going to uni in the mid-90s, there was a lot of debate. There was a little bit of animosity. But even at the height of postmodernism, there's a lot of people doing kind of you know, you're exposed to, to views about, you know, the Bible's all made up, blah, blah, blah. But again, it was, there was a, it was actually benign. I didn't get a sense that there was none of this, the kind of assumptions we've yeah. talked about that you're, you're a hateful bigot. That wasn't the starting assumption mm. when you say to someone, <laughs> I'm a Christian or I'm a, I'm a priest or I'm studying theology. Whereas, and so I think what's happened is the this uh, bifurcation, the splintering, and there are, there are many, if you like, facts, sub factions and sub-fragmentations on the left and right. I think everyone's respond, responding to the fact the status of, of Christianity has changed radically. Yeah. And they and paradoxically, the hardest right-wing Christian response and the softest 
progressive Christian response, in a way they're, they're responding to the same pressures, but they're just choosing different paths. Yeah. That didn't answer your question, but that that's for myself, I, I kind of thread a needle. I don't, I don't, I'm not a big fan of the cultural motif because I think it, again, I'm, I'm a real stickler for precision in language. I don't think war is the right term. I think that stretches the semantic field too much. And I kind of feel like it's um, largely point, pointless, which will disappoint a lot of friends and um, and uh, potentially listeners because I, I think this war has been, it's like, it's like a, um, it's this kind of war. There, it's a bit like Northern Ireland. There, there's a kind of Protestant death squad, and then there's the IRA, and they're assassinating each other. But then ninety-eight percent of people are just trying to bloody live. Yeah, life. Well, like it's not a war that a lot of people are in, and it seems obviously it's an intense war. If you're on Twitter all the time, oh yeah, and you say provocative things, and they dump on you, and then you share stuff, and you galvanise your supporters. But I ask myself because I'm conservative, who are you persuading? I'm actually a conservative evangelist, just to sound idolatrous and heretical, in the sense that I think if you don't present a constructive, positive vision of what a conservative philosophical disposition is, if you don't actually invite people to take a more conservative attitude to political change, legislation, tradition, yep. the family, you name what it is, and I, and I know that's prov- provocative, but I assume most people are not gonna become Christians. But it would still be good if they became more conservative uh, than they are, and and I'll be explicit about this. My my main interest is actually the church. It's going to survive better in a more conservative society, even if most conservatives are not are not Christians. And just to be clear, because you are a more real evangelical than I am, I'm a kind of pseudo theologian, and, and I said before I am ambivalent about the term evangelical. So just to be clear, because there was something you said earlier that I found really interesting about how you're you're a conservative not because um you, you find conservatism a good sort of fit for being a christian but it's not the other way around that being conservative means you've also got to be a christian just to be clear my conservatism is a philosophy it's not because jesus was a conservative it's not because the bible tells me mm. to be a conservative it's because of reason the reading of tra- tradition and understanding of political processes and certain big theological ideas like my theological anthropology i believe everyone actually is capable of evil i believe everyone's in need of redemption but my mantra is there's no redemption in politics when i read the bible it it actually makes me look elsewhere for redemption to the the um, blood of jesus christ and his resurrection and uh so i have a healthy distinction which is not always maintained increasingly these days on the christian right where my, I, I, I will not tell you that my um, conservatism is the kind of biblical view. Even Calvin knew that there was no political polity laid out in the Bible. And if you think about it, to something you said earlier, Michael, um, when you talk, we were talking about the particularity and the idiosyncrasies of American Christianity and how if you black out America and look at the world, you get a really different picture and you realize actually that it's America, American evangelicalism that's out of step Oh yeah, definitely. The, the global norm. The thing is, this Bible has to work in a myriad different political societies. You have to be able to be saved and live as a Christian somehow in a China, in a Nigeria, in an Iran, in an America. And so you imagine if the Bible, like Islam, laid out a pretty specific political model 
and to really fully be a Christian, you had to be in very specific legislative circumstances or there was a very specific system of government. Most Christians would be in extreme trouble. Yeah. They wouldn't be able to live out their faith. There's actually a genius in the fact that the Bible is not a political treatise and it doesn't lay out. It's quite ambiguous in places, I think, in terms, and it's, or, or perhaps the better thing is it's non-prescriptive you know, about whether you have to have a democracy, not even mentioned in the Bible. You know, you can be a Christian in a monarchy, in an absolute monarchy, in, you could even, you can, the people did survive somehow as Christians in, dare I say, socialist uh, situations, because your Christian faith is not tied down to a particular political model. And Jesus himself, you know, when the, when the crowd tried to commandeer him and make him a, a king, king he force. retreated to the, you know, that's not what he was sent. Yes, he's a king, but as he said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this um, yeah, I, I'm, all, I'm all right with you arguing for that, John, that, that a political conservatism will create the best climate to be a Christian or, or, or for the church to be free. I, I think that's true. Well, maybe it's true. Um, well, based on what I just said, it will survive, actually, in this um, yeah, because progressive like you, totalitarianism. It just won't be a lot of fun. It just well, well, maybe that's right. That's right. But even with the conservative option, you you can end up with um, different temptations and problems. Definitely. One, you, you, I mean, the idea of you know political libertinism or you know pure, the hyper individualism yeah. can be something that you get where you know everything's pretty much permissible unless you're directly hurting someone. And on the as we've seen with the conservative option, both I think in. Uh, you could argue in America, maybe in other parts like Poland and Hungary and Brazil, there is a temptation to tie yourself to powerful right-wing figures, mm. um, because that's the strong man. That's the that's the Cyrus. Yeah. That's the that's the um, uh, or whatever uh, sort of quasi messiah who's going to leave you in deliverance over and your enemies. Mm. Uh, and I think you've, you've you've got to acknowledge uh, that temptation, and that can be problematic. And I wouldn't. I wouldn't think ill of people uh, if they didn't want to get that. I, rather than conservatism, I, I do believe a, a social liberalism, in, you know, and maybe that's what you mean by conservatism, but a social li- liberalism where you've got a fairly free society where there are, where there are rights, where there, are, there, are, there is a constitutional arrangement to protect the minority from the mob. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's what I tell people. I say Australia is not a pure democracy. You know, you cannot just have a vote tomorrow and decide that we're going to exile all of the Muslims to, you know, some some barren land like um uh, like Morton like you know Morton Bay Island or something, um or some rock off Tasmania. I was going to um, say Tasmania, but yeah, I said a rock <laughs> off Tasm off Tasmania. Uh, the Constitution protects minorities from the mob, and I think as long as we have a a constitutional arrangement along those lines. I think religious minorities should be protected. Uh, what I'm, what I'm, what I'm frightful of is when we no longer value that. When po- politicians or whoever cave to the will of the mob, that that I think is going to become more problematic. And I don't know what uh, I don't know what evangelicalism will look like in a more hostile context. Uh, I don't know what it would look like in a more well, actually, in a more conservative context. It'd probably turn into something like Trumpism, mm-hmm. or with you know whoever you like as the new Trump. Um, but that's something to think. But evangelicalism has generally been possible in diverse political arrangements: monarchies, socialists, kingdoms, republics. Uh, I like to think that evangelicalism and more broadly the Church of Jesus Christ will persevere and thrive 
where wherever it is. Uh, and we, and our job is to plant seeds, knowing we may never see it grow. We may never mm. see the final tree. Okay, so you plant the seeds. Um, you may never see what comes of it, but in 100, 200 years, there will hopefully be a big oak tree. The, just make a couple of observations, because you raised a couple of good questions there. And it is important to clarify the term conservatism, because in a way, it finds itself in exactly the same predicament as evangelicalism. Mm in a couple of sense. One, it's become a toxic term. And and it's amazing. I, I had this experience um, when I first set up this podcast with my good friend, um, Simon Kennedy. Shout out to Simon if you're listening. I'm doing some shout outs for the first time. Uh, we, 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 we sort of dipped our toes into Twitter advertisement. And it was amazing the hostile reaction we got from people just reacting. At, then, at that stage, we had kind of conservative in our little description yeah but of course no one listened to it no one listened to anything but i was just like okay it's it's amazing how people make they read certain connotations and they have a certain visceral reaction just to a word not based on actually anything we have and it's all based on Mm. assumptions and stereotypes so conservatism and being an academic working at a secular uni it's it's just amazing to see i like to do it as a provocative kind of I'm not a provocative person per se, but I'm very open that I'm a conservative. And it's just like people are shocked because they have a, again, it's like evangelicalism. They're thinking, oh my goodness, this guy must have a hard on for Trump. Excuse the expression. Like, it's like, and this gets back to why it's important um, on the conservatism thing. There are, there are uh, many dangers in being a Christian political anything, mm-hmm. but I do think there are extreme dangers in, in being a, a Christian political nothing because if, oh, yeah. if the Christians vacate, there is this third way view, which is Christianity is above politics. It's got a, Christians need to transcend it. We're kind of superior beings from these political hacks on the left and the right. But of course, if the, if you vacate the political, it will be filled. Political decisions will be made. Power yeah. will be in the hands of someone. Legislation will be passed. The question's not... Well, and can the church be in or in or not but whether it wants to have an influence that is i think dealing yourself out of politics it's a bit it's a bit like pacifism the pacifists i think take the coward's route no disrespect to pacifists and i'm and i'm i think most wars are actually unjust but i do believe some wars are necessary and just and that is when the pacifist says well as isis is hurtling towards this christian village they're going to rape all the women and kill every man woman and child well I can't say anything about that because the Bible tells me all violence is wrong. Well, I'm sorry, but your decision of inaction is a decision, hmm. and it is an action, and it doesn't make it doesn't make you morally culpable for the slaughter. But you can't pretend somehow you've avoided the decision. Yeah, you are condemning those people yep. to death. Your inaction is actually a a policy choice, and so I think. I think I get the sense that some Christian leaders, including some prominent Christians in Australia, feel like they can avoid the taint of complicity and they can avoid the difficulty of some of these decisions. And I, and I get why they, it's so polarized. I, can, I, I understand the temptation to want to bypass everything that's going on, but I don't think that leaves you with clean hands because whatever happens in society, if you stand back and do nothing, 
then you've played a small role. Yeah, I actually wrote on this um, a while ago. I've got a I've got a Substack account for those who are interested. Give Michael, yourself a plug. MichaelFBird.substack.com, uh, where I, I I sort of wrote about the Constantinian conundrum. So you know, it's one thing to say you know we don't want to be like you know the Constantine the Constantinization of the church. So we have this unholy marriage between the church and political power. Instead, we should be the prophet on the margins of society, speaking truth to power. But the problem which I raise, I think it's a legitimate one. Fine, you want to be the prophet on the margin, speaking truth to power. What happens when the power starts to listen? Yeah. <laughs> and then, then what? Then, then you seem to be invited into the room where it happens, where you're offering either chaplaincy or advice to the powers that be. Uh, so some Constantinization, the idea that sort of political influence, to some degree has got to be desirable. Okay. Now, we don't want to be a theocracy, hmm. but kind of, you know, what's the point of being the prophet who speaks the truth if you don't want anyone to listen? Yeah. And if you want to listen and influence people, then, you know, uh, you know I mean, you've got the extreme, like, you know, I've seen, I remember one American evangelist I saw, he said, we want all of America converted, baptized, and enrolled to vote. Okay. <laughs> Which I, I thought was a pretty weird kind of setup as your terms of priorities as if voting kind of substitutes for discipleship. But that, that's, that's, that's a funny thing. But, you know, complete absence, I, I don't think, like, for the reasons you've said. You, you, I mean, and there's a whole bunch of issues that I'm into, which um, a lot of other people, like, um, you, know, I think, you know, refugees is obviously a big one. For me, my sort of pet um, social product is the influence of the gambling lobby, mm. um, albeit largely through the Conservative Party, mm. um, although the Labor Party is not um, immune to this. Uh, they do like a pokey machine in their they, clubs. They're not, yeah, they're, they're, not a, they're not afraid of a pokey machine and that type of thing. So th- yeah, I, th- I don't think withdrawal uh, is, as you said, the, 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 the political equivalent of pacifism is a realistic option. I think we do have to uh, advocate uh, in, in, in some sense. And however you define conservatism... I am just, I am remain concerned it's going to make that right-wing drift and then you're going to find yourself in a Faustian pact with Mm. political power, Mm. which is largely, I think, what's happened to big segments of the American church. Not all of it, but big segments of it. Um, That that is a direction I don't want to go. Um, I I tend to, I mean, my, to use the analogies I use, how I think a, a, uh, what I would call a Catholic, an adjective, a Catholic evangelicalism. Okay, that is, I want to be part of one holy Catholic apostolic church, of which evangelicalism is its sort of um, uh, expression. expression in Protestant form in the in the contemporary world. Uh, I think we do need to, in some sense, make ourselves a little bit more invisible. Be the, as we as we would say in the intelligence industry, be the grey man. Okay, <laughs> just try to blend in. But you but you've got to then engage in certain subversive activities to, I believe, strike at those, those forces of, of unhumanity. Now, whether it's the, the progressive view with their totalitarianism, whether it's the, um, the capitalists with their naked drives for profit, even funded by uh, human suffering, you, you've got to engage in these little subversive operations, but doing it while making yourself a small enough target, okay? Um, and be, being the sort of... Um, be visible enough that people that people you want can find you, but invisible enough that your enemies really have to look up and Google where you are. Um, <laughs> something something along those lines. 
So I mean, maybe that, that that's that's my own sort of military metaphor. I don't know whether um, if there's a quite name a name for it. It's, it's not exactly the Benedict option. It's it's more kind of like the uh, the the guerrilla the warfare option. The guerrilla warfare, the Che Guevara. Uh, the, oh yes, the Che Guevara. Style of the. Yeah. It's interesting. I just want to clarify something I said because this this does tie into um, where you're going. I think the. One of the virtues as I see it, let, let me just lay this on the table. I think part of the problem, this is this is the, the next chapter in when, when I say I'm philosophically a conservative, primarily for th- philosophical, historical, and kind of political analytical So when you reasons. say conservative, do you mean that in the sense of being like a, a, a free market, a liberal no, democracy? No, well... Yes or no? This is, but this is precisely so, what I mean, I'm going to answer. Like, like I believe in conserving things like the environment yeah. and people's lives, yeah. like refugees, um, which is why I have some problems with our current yeah. conservative government because I, I don't think they're doing the best job of conserving the environment, and I don't think they're always doing the best job of conserving yeah. the lives of refugees. Yeah. Um, who, and I understand the refugees are complicated. You've got to differentiate refugees purely from economic migrants. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I, and I know they, they don't want people dying at sea in boats, that type of thing. But, you know, I, I didn't join the army so we could lock refugees up on some godforsaken rock in the South Pacific. Mm-hmm. So that, I, I, have a, I have a few quibbles with what goes as conservatism in Australian conservative politics. But what do you mean, John, what do you mean Jonathan, by conservative? Let, let, me, let me start off with this. I mean, I'm unconscious that, you know, because I host this program, <laughs> regular listeners, so there, there are people that have listened to the entire uh, catalogue, you know, they he- hear me constantly talk about this. So I'm going to, I'll try and go in some new territory. I, I think, I think you have a concern about what I said, I sense, and it's a valid concern and I need to address it. I don't mind the is, idea of conserving stuff. No, no, I mean, I mean, just, just this simple notion that, you know, I'm a conservative and it's compatible with Christianity and society would be better if it's conservative for the church. When you don't actually know what you mean by conservatism, it's it's a little hard to, to assess. I think conservatism has become a degenerate bastard of what it was. I think I think it's it's pathetic. I think what you mean like in its current form? Yeah. I think I think I, I want to reform conservatism. I want to restore it as an intellectual tradition. I think it's made being stupid a virtue because it's seen the left you know the the notion of intellectual is associated with the left. I have I know conservative intellectuals, and I've met lots of conservatives, highly educated people. Cambridge, Oxford, they're writing in literary journals. You mention the word intellectual, and their face scrounges up, and they go, "Oh no, I could never call myself intellectual. That's that's a left wing thing." Just like you don't want to let the term evangelical be prized out of your cold dead hands. So I'm yeah. going to hang on to this bastard conservatism and not let leftists give being intelligent actually reading science like this anti-scientism this anti-intellectualism which admittedly is far worse in australia than it is in america i don't think that's a virtue that doesn't mean ruled by elites in that sense but i am fundamentally an aristocrat in the greek sense i don't want to be ruled by the worst the people of bad character like trump i want to be ruled by people of character virtue intelligence experience wisdom and I don't think we that should be seen as a um, as a problem, and so I, I think conservatism today. The reason I describe it as a de- degenerate bastard, it's become a set of ideological dogma that has a set of very 
definite policies. And if you deviate slightly from that, uh, the tribe turns on you. All of that describes everything I think the left is. Oh, it's yeah. It's dogmatic. It's totalitarian. Cannibalistic. They, yeah, yeah they, they're, they're merciless towards anyone that puts one toe across the line that they have drawn. And I think it's because it's become so derivative of the left, so obsessed with the left that it's imbibed all of the left's worst pathologies. Yeah. Conservatism is not a set of dogmas, it's not an ideology, it's a way of being, it's a way of living, it's a disposition towards life. It's but that a, sounds ideationally vacuous, they don't believe anything. Conservatives, you mean? Well, that's what it sounds like. If, if it's if it's not if it's not a, an ideology, then it's vacuous. They well, it's a, well, I mean, technically, if you want to get like Birkin and Kirkian, it's a set of principles. Yeah. But I I hold the principles loosely. I think it's it's a certain view of the central place of the family. Yeah. It's a it does prize what I would call a family of freedoms, and I don't think we realise that freedoms uh, come in a family. Is that Scott Morrison? Uh, no. <laughs> it's a Pope oh, telling you um, not, not to uh, set up to that say, Snoop Doggy world. So just saying, yes, Snoop Pope, sorry. After, after just my daughter, she's probably asking when I'm going to get home so she can have the car. That's right. We'll, we'll wrap up in a sec. You're, you're now the official record holder of, of length. Oh, wow. But see, I think the, the reason why it's so hard to articulate what conservatism is, is it has to be anti-ideological which actually make, gives it a massive tactical disadvantage because it is a set of principles that are going to lead to different outcomes because you've got to take each issue as it comes. So it's not just conserving things blindly, nor is it opposition to all change for the sake of change. It's a, Russell Kirk was very big on the idea of prudence. It's a politics of prudence. He wrote a whole book on it. This is one, okay. of, the, one of the guys that founded it. Well, when, when I think of conservatism, I mean, I think of the, uh, the American William Buckley. Yeah, you know, I mean, he who was quite an exceptional public figure. You know, mm. a Catholic, devout Catholic as well. Um, he defined a conservative as someone seeing the train of history going full ball along the tracks and and yells out, "Slow down," mm -hmm. uh, or "Stop," mm. or something along those lines. Um, that that is the idea that all progress needs to be checked. Mm. Okay, in the sense of um, where it's going, its outcome, its effect on the present, its effect on the future. So you could argue it was, it was, it's kind of the a counterpart to, uh, to progress because, I mean, the, the, the problem we have, we have this big myth of progress. Everything's going to keep getting better. And the problem is we keep changing things. We can then keep demonizing the past. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've only got to go look at you know, what people say about TV shows like Seinfeld and Friends, mm -hmm. uh, which are now beyond the pale. Uh, for being so hetero or yep. being so white or whatever, so I I, I would have said a in my my gut feeling was to say a conservative is someone who wants to offer balances about the way society is progressing. Now that can be things like concern from the family, concern for basic freedoms. Okay, but I I would not say that's non ideological. I think that's very ideological. If if you believe that the family is the basic principle unit of society, that is a belief. Mm -hmm. uh, apart from, shall we say, more progressive views today that argue that family must be deconstructed. Yeah. Okay, along those sorts of lines. So, I don't think you can escape some sort of ideology in your conservatism, but it's going to be an ideology that needs to be a bulwark against the excesses against the the dangers of whatever we'll be counting as 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 progressive i mean society is always going to um 
change and develop either techno- te- technologically, demographically, mm-hmm. culturally. But a, a conservative, I would have thought, is someone who says, let's wait and see what this means for, or for the things I said, for the basic family, for the economy, yeah. um, for the good of human flourishing, uh, those sorts of things. So I, I have a very, I do have a specific definition of ideology, which is ideology, uh, and this is influenced by a Greek philosopher called Christos Yanaras that I've done a lot of work on, so I wouldn't expect people to <laughs> necessarily oh, guess. Oh, Christos, what a good name. What, what I mean, yeah, yeah. And uh, that is that it, it takes an a priori view to politics, has certain a priori ideas that must be applied irrespective of the circumstances. And that, that is very much what I see on both the right and the left these days. And so, for example, a classic case is abortion. So unless you're absolutely against abortion and treat it as the number one pressing issue now, then effectively you're, you're complicit in murder. Now, I don't like abortion, and I think there are certainly cases where abortion could be considered murder. Like if you think about it, conceptually, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, a late-term abortion because the child's inconvenient, it's hard not to say that that's murder. But then, isn't there a bit of a difference when it's a 13-year-old girl who was raped and impregnated? Now, that's not to say an abortion is right there. But the this ideological view is not very nimble at recognizing distinctions and taking circumstances into consideration. So an, ide- an old-fashioned ideological conservative view of the family is divorce is wrong no matter what the circumstances are. Now, I think divorce should actually be difficult and I want to as a conservative promote healthy monogamous lifelong marriages Mm -hmm. but I'm a realist and this is this is where conservative for me is a politics of prudence in the Kirkian sense sometimes regrettably I think it is better if the couple split I think it's actually going to be better for the kids if they're at war with each other and providing a very unstable home and they're literally making their lives miserable to the point of dysfunction then I think sometimes you can actually approve of a divorce. But that you, but know, you have to be able to take into consideration the exceptions. Now, what I'm saying, and you may, you're, you're free to disagree, is I think conservatism is moving more and more towards this ideology because I think now maybe the left is, is largely to blame, but I don't think just because the left is using certain weaponry because it's highly ideological, the hate speech thing, there's no, there's no, there's no exculpatory situation there there's no forgiveness it's like you you're not you're not for same-sex uh in favor of same-sex marriage that makes you a bigot and we're not going to take in the way you say it the fact that it was someone hacked into your phone and exposed the private none of this stuff makes any difference it's the the same thing as that absolute abortion thing of like every abortion has to be prevented um no matter what and so the point of view is i think conservatism which should be highly pragmatic but from a, a set of firm principles which for yeah. me are often christian but this is why i say see the model of approaching is not biblical in the sense that jesus jesus taught you know politics is is the uh act of prudence in a sort of birkin way no 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 but the principles are often theologically but what i'm saying is the very approach to to politics is a philosophical disposition and this is where the f- philosophy actually is distinguished from ideology. Ideology is all about ideas and it has a an epistemic arrogance that just thinks if we it, it's absolutely certain that if we implement policy A completely, then B happens. My the kind of uh, conservative political philosophy I'm talking about 
actually I can't go into detail and we need to end this has a much more textured it actually has a serious view of history of anthropology of political processes like causation and change that I can't go into and all of that amounts to both the transcendence of political knowledge that is the political processes and environment we have it transcends our ability to a control it or to even understand and see every variable that's at work which again leads me back to prudence and open-mindedness and that's why I think the best you can have is a couple of key principles like principles about like a key principle is that tradition actually is a really important bedrock of society you need some tradition that doesn't mean traditions are incontestable because as I've said I think just on the previous podcast it is possible to institutionalize injustice as we've seen with Mm. slavery so conservatives need to be cautious but again see the 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 ideological conservative is no no because there's this war going on with the left we can't concede ground on on anything again this is totally this is why i call it a degenerate bastard this is why it needs to recover its intellectual tradition because a generation a, a younger generation who rightly see that the left is nuts and that a lot of this stuff is going to be harmful the whole cancel culture the crazy stuff on gender the the sexual revolution has just led to rampant pornography and blah, 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 blah. Don't, don't get me started. So where do they look for a response? They go to the culture warriors of the right. And they are on the right side, don't get me wrong, of most issues. But they've got such a simplistic, they're not actually offering a political philosophy, a, a mode of operating or a sophisticated view of how politics actually works. And because I spent 13 years as a public service and got a kind of inside view into the nuts and bolts of how politics works. And although I, 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 I'm a political theologian, um, I've approached it through the political side in terms of political science and political philosophy much more than theology. I'm really a political thinker who's theologically literate. There's a, a big difference. A lot of the Christian uh, polit- political figures both left and right don't actually know a lot about politics and it's very obvious they've got very limited political experience and if they have any experience it's in activism but of course activism is very different from governing it's very different from managing an institution it's very different from legislating can i sum up what i think you're saying yeah because we need to finish wrap wrap, wrap up the show for us michael well okay wrap up what i think you're saying conservatism sounds to me like a type of principled ideology but with a very strong pragmatic awareness Mm mm-hmm that you have to apply your principles pragmatically. Okay, so that's, that's how it's up. Anyway, well, I thank you for having me on. It's been great. I think we have now solved the evangelical debate. We have got a whole new I think host. we solved that at about the 30-minute mark, and then we well and truly moved on to... Then the- I, think, I think we've assigned a new host for um, Q&A, and we've uh, got a whole bunch of options for the church in a postmodern age, and we've got a thorough definition of political conservatism.